Yeah, anyway, uh, here's Wonderwall. Yeah, Rick and Tara. Yeah, alright, mate, you're alright. I've had a bloody gut for the Big Stiff podcast. You guys obviously have done your homework, which is really, really important. I've enjoyed this totally, and hopefully you'll go on the bigger and bigger and better things because you're a pair of great guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Big Stiff podcast. I'm joined here by co hosts Jax and Roscoe. We've got the pleasure of having George Scott on. Um, so George Scott was born in Aberdeen on the 25th of October 1944. George went to St Paul Street Primary School and then Middle Secondary School. A talented footballer, he represented Aberdeen schools and was selected for Scotland schools but was un- a- unable to play due to injury. The caretaker of his school, Jim Lawney, the former St Myron goalkeeper, was a scout for Liverpool and he suggested to Bill Shankly the new manager of the club, that he should take a look at this promising striker. And that's where it all began. Welcome, Georgie. How you going, mate? Well, it's great to see you over there in Australia. It's a long way, but it's nice to see you. Oh, mate, it sure is. Uh, we we just like to thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, um, it's, buddy. An absolute, it's an absolute pleasure to sort of get an insight into the history of Liverpool. Um, and, yeah, we can't wait to get into some unreal stories. So thank what you. we're going to... What we're going to do first is we usually have uh, a little segment um, to start off the show just so people get to know you a little bit. Um, so I'm just going to ask you five quick questions. Um, you know, they're sort of one-word answers just off off the tongue. They just roll off the tongue, you know, so they're quite easy. Um, so are you a bar or dance floor person? Well, one word's difficult because I'm either at the moment because I'm not allowed to drink for a bit yet after my recent experiences in terms of my health, and the other one is I'm a little bit too old to dance. So uh, if, I was, if I was to choose, if I was to choose, I'd probably say dance. Ooh, nice. you got a few moves, do you? Um, who, who, is, who is your hero? Well, I've got a few heroes. I can't just say one word. I'll give you three at least. First year as my wife because Ooh, of the she had against cancer and how she overcome it, which was very wow. inspirational. Uh, second one is my father, who sadly I never met, but I'm still my hero because he was killed in Normandy in 1944, and he's been with me ever since in terms of, uh, you know, in my mind, in my heart. And the third yeah. one is Bill Shankly, who I owe so much to in terms of my life at Liverpool and subsequent to Liverpool. Um, and I was going to mention a football idol would be Dennis Law. Wow. The Scottish footballer in Man United, unfortunately, but he was a great friend of mine, really, and he was a big idol and a great player. Very good. Uh, something people don't know about you. Well, I think if anybody's read the book, they'll know everything about me. If they hadn't yeah. read the book, then there's there's loads of things he would uh, far too many to mention here, I suppose. I suppose about the afternoon tea with his tail in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. That's yeah. one. Um I don't know, there's hundreds really, but I could never do it in one word. Favourite movie? Favourite movie, I would say, um, one of the movies I really enjoyed, it was one called Sliding Doors, which okay. you may or may not have seen, it was called Gwyneth Paltrow, and it's about the difference a heartbeat can make in your life. Uh, the film actually is her going to the train, trying to open the door, she can't open the door, so she's stuck on the platform, and it shows you her life since then. And the other, the other part of the film is the door opens, she gets into the compartment, 
and how our life changed from there. So that mirrors my life somewhat. That, you know, little decisions and makes huge differences. I also like the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Jack oh, Nicholson, yeah. and oh, yeah. um, and Saving Private Ryan. Oh, oh fantastic, mate! Yeah. Right up my alley, yeah. Yeah, unreal movie. Uh, if you had to, fav like, what karaoke song would you sing at a karaoke well, probably, bar? Probably be Let It Be by the Beatles. Oh. Hey. Yes, that was going to be my next question, mate. I was going to uh, – it's not written down. No, I'm not going to sing it. No, but I was going <laughs> to say, what is your favourite Beatles song? But I think you've already given us that answer. No, no, no. no. My favourite Beatles song is In My Life. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Fantastic. They're all great. They're all fantastic. When we were kids, the Beatles were just starting. And every month a new song came out. And we couldn't believe these four lads were writing these songs. We thought somebody was writing them. And every single one went to the top of the charts, and they were all fantastic. I can't think of a bad Beatles song. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, a, you're a massive Beatles fan, aren't you? Yeah. And you had yeah. the pleasure of seeing them, right? I did. Just watched them in the cavern. Well, not just the cavern, in a number of places in the, in the early 60s. I remember watching them perform on their first record. Um, and uh, we all knew they were going to be big, but how big? We didn't know that. We thought yeah, they were going sure. to be a huge group, but not worldwide, internationally. Still worth millions to Liverpool now in the tourism. Yeah, absolutely. So, George, can you give us a bit of insight into your background um, and where you grew up? Um, well, I grew up in Aberdeen. I was born in Aberdeen in northeast of Scotland. Um, it's uh, Aberdeen's quite a, a smallish city, about two hundred eighty thousand people. The main the main uh, industry then was fishing. Since then, of course, it's huge in uh, oil. And that's returned to whole Aberdeen. So I was born in Aberdeen. I was born uh, in a, a one-room, a one one you would call it an apartment. It was a flat in a cottage where four families lived uh, in 1944. It was overlooking the Bay of Neg, which is um, a view from my bedroom windows as a baby. Had I been able to reach there, uh, is right across to Aberdeen. You can see the city you know, where we were and the Bay of Neg. So it was a lovely spot, really, but we were really, it was tough times. My mother had just lost my father. She was widowed at the age of 21. Um, she had to bring up a baby on her own with the help of my granddad and my grandma um, in that one little room, you know. So she had to go out to work as well, of course. So that was my early life. And then when I reached the age of five, my mum married again. She married my stepfather, who fortunately for me, turned out to be a brilliant, brilliant man. And he looked after me as his own son for the rest of his life, but he sadly passed away in 1992, I think it was. So that was a joy for me. I had two brothers as a result, so I wasn't an only child anymore. And um, when I was five and they got married, we moved from this more parochial place overlooking the bay into the city centre of Aberdeen. And we lived in a tenement, really, which is a typical Scottish tenement, outside toilets, you know, um, no running water in the house. You have to go outside to get the water and boil it on fire. So it was a bit sort of, uh, we were happy. It was, we didn't know any difference. And yeah, then sure. when I was 11, we moved up to a council estate in the north of Aberdeen, which was luxury. Because we had our own rooms, we had a bathroom, we had a nice garden, and uh, my mum and dad went from there from strength to strength, really. At that time, I was shown promise as a footballer, schoolboy footballer. And uh, I played many times for the Aberdeen School Select, representing the school. And then I was selected for the Scottish schools. But unfortunately, I, I sustained a bad injury and just before the first match. And I couldn't play, which was a shame. But um, subsequently, Aberdeen Football Club, which I wanted to play for, that was my dream to play for Aberdeen. 
they were my local team, so I didn't want to do anything else. And they came along and offered my parents six pounds a week, which was a lot of money for a 15-year-old boy in 1959-60. And that six pounds a week was two-thirds of my father's salary. So, wow. you know, I, it would have been great for the family for me to send for Aberdeen, great for me. It's all I ever wanted to do. And then I, when I went in the works, when Jim Loney, who you mentioned before, he was the caretaker of our school. I never knew he was a football scout. One day he came up to me and said, I want to send you to Liverpool for the trial. And I hardly, I mean, I knew nothing about Liverpool. I'd never been out of Aberdeen except to Dundee maybe for a weekend. And so I don't know why, but something just said, yeah, go on, go. My parents weren't too happy. Grandmother and my grandfather weren't too happy. Obviously, 15 years of age, Liverpool's 350 miles away. So, but somehow I persuaded them to let me go. So I went down to Liverpool and I had my first trial there. So, all moved on from there. I read an excerpt from your book and I think it was your grandmother said, Where's Liverpool? Yeah, what I was when I was talking to Shanks um, after the end of the week's trial, he was telling me that I'd be very impressed with his son who wanted to sign. Uh, yeah. I said, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Shankly, because you know, my mum and dad are not very happy about me already being all the way down here. And I just really came down for the experience. Yeah. And, you know, my grandmother and my grandfather wouldn't be happy as that. In fact, my grandmother doesn't even know where Liverpool is. And Shankly being, Shankly being Shankly said, you tell us, son. We're in the second division at the moment, but we'll be in the first division next year. Soon everybody will know where Liverpool is. And that words, that word struck something in my mind and I thought this is no ordinary man and so when I went back to Liverpool I persuaded my parents I don't know how I did it to allow me to leave home and go to Liverpool and it should never have happened it's like destiny pulling me down there I don't know why it happened and so a few weeks later I was seen off by my granddad at the station and it was a very sad occasion it turned out really because it was the last time I saw him and subsequently he died about six weeks after I arrived in Liverpool so but, you know, I knew that it was my destiny to go there and, um, you know, I needed to needed to do it. It's something I wanted to do. Most sportsmen feel like that. They've got to drive to do what they feel they were born to do. I mean, as a footballer, I didn't do anything else other than play football for 17 years. from age of 15 to 32. So, you know, I, I didn't really do any work for the last 17 years. It was all pleasure. Yeah. What, uh, what injury did you suffer when you were in school that you couldn't go on to play with at school? That was an ankle injury. Okay. It's an injury to my ankle. It wasn't a serious injury. It was enough to put me out for six weeks. And of course, I missed the, uh, missed the opportunity to get a cap for Scotland schools. Oh, that, wow. You, know, you could do nothing about that, really. I mean, I was ready on the way to Liverpool at the time, actually. Long so after that. I know that you, you touched on it before about your biological father passing away just a mere few months before your birth. Um, how did that affect your life? Well, I mean, it affected everything about my life, really, because if my dad had survived Normandy, I would have went to a different school. I wouldn't have moved across to the city centre. I would have stayed in the place called Torrey, where the cottage was. I would have went to a different school. I would have met different people. Uh, probably would have signed for Aberdeen. Um, I wouldn't have been in the school where Lonnie was the caretaker. So the whole life, that's why I mentioned about sliding doors. I mean, the whole life was changed because of a German door. Yeah. And I subsequently found out how he died. He was, uh, he was on a mission across the, uh, the Rhine and he was in the front two boats and they were machine gunned. And, um, and funny enough, when I went to my grandmother's funeral, that's his mum, a lady came up to me and recognised me by my father, the resemblance. She said her son was on the boat with my dad when he, when he was shot. 
and um, he tried to hold on to him, but he couldn't because of the geese royal and he slipped away. But they did recover his body, and he's, he's buried in a beautiful grave in Normandy, near near Bayou. And in fact, his name is now on the national memorial for all those soldiers that were killed in Normandy, like 24,000. So it's just been opened in June. So next year, I'm going with my sons across to see it. I have been once to his grave. I went on the 50th anniversary of D-Day when the two sons, and that was quite an emotional experience, to be honest. Um, but that's, that's what happened, you know. I mean, it would have been lovely to meet him. And well, I've got letters from him that he sent home. And I can see my, I can see my personality in his words, you know. Yeah. Um, quite, uh, he, one of the things he said was, um, we'll be home in no time at all. <laughs> he was killed four weeks later. You know, so um, it's just, yeah, it was just another family who suffered like many families. Yes. Australian boys, you know, British, everybody, they all got a terrible time in those days. Happier days these, I hope. You don't think so with this pandemic, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, for I was sure. Actually, I was actually reading a few chapters of your book, um, and it said you took a little while to get used to your stepdad as well. Um, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, because I was spoiled. I was spoiled by my mother and my grandparents. I yeah. was allowed to have everything I wanted because it happened to my dad. And he came in with um, the responsibility to, like a lion tamer, you know. He came in to sort of, look, mate, you know, you're not going to think, you're, you're going to do what you're told, you know. And it was cruel. It wasn't cruel. He was, he was firm. Never struck me, never laid a finger on me. But he, yeah. he said no. Said no, many things. You can't do that. You're not doing that. So just what used to again. And the amazing thing was, my mother used to take great pride in. One day when I was about seven, I said something like, "Hey, Dad, can I go out to play?" And that was the first time I called him Dad because I'd always called him Johnny before that. And from then on, he was not, he was I mean he was an amazing man. He himself suffered in the war. He was in jail. He was in prisoner of war for six years on the Japanese, oh, really? the Germans, and yeah, uh, so he had a real tough time. You know, and uh, he told some yeah. great stories. He used to tell me some great stories about his incarceration. You know, he had a lot of courage. You know, and um, came home obviously not in the best of health, but to rebuild his health again. In those days, they were all smokers. It's Scots people, smokers and drinkers. You know, so he liked a little whiskey and he liked a fag. Um, <laughs> and in the end, in the end, he was only seventy-two when he died. I think that was one of the reasons. I think with the um, cigarette. Is the Scotch and whiskey, is that, is that love passed down <laughs> yeah. through the generations? Sorry, can you repeat that? Is the Scotch and uh, cigarettes passed down through the generations, do you think? No, I know, well, not necessarily, no. I think it's worse in Glasgow. Okay. In Glasgow. Every bar in Glasgow is back to lunchtime, you know. And they're like whiskey chasers. You have a pint and a, whis a, pint and a nip. A pint of beer. <laughs> and a heavy and a nip of whiskey. Yeah. And I used to be smoking the bars. You don't get smoking now. Yeah, no. mm. yeah, for sure. All right. So, uh, 15 years old, and you moved on to Liverpool. Um, how did you How did you come to that decision? And did Jim Lawney have something to do with that? Well, yeah. He, the only thing Jim had to do with it was he recommended me to Liverpool. He was a scout. He had scouts all over the country. And what happened at the time was Bill Shankly wanted to build uh, young lads like Matt Busby had done at Manchester United. The mm. Busby Babes, Duncan Edwards, and those boys sadly were killed in Munich. And Shankly had the same idea. So he got Gordon Wallace, still a great friend of mine today, 61 years later. But we were doing an art, we were doing an exhibition yesterday, not an exhibition, we were signing my books and his shirts yesterday. And we raised fourteen hundred pounds for lymphoma research. And they presented us presented us with beautiful, unique shirts framed 
And I must show you that. I must send you, Scott. You know, it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, it's got the It's got the, uh, the send it to you. Yeah, I'll send it. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. I'll send. I didn't send it to the boys, but I'll, I'll send it to them in the group chat. It's but, got yeah. that wonderful, the wonderful words he said, he said to me when I ended my time at Liverpool. But that, so you know, I was still friends. Bobby Graham was another good player that we were all kids together. Tommy Smith, yep. and, um, Chris Lawler. So what the idea was, he wanted to get these boys at a young age. So he had scouts all over Britain. So he had Tommy Smith and Chris Lawler from Liverpool. Gordon Wallace from South Wales, although he was born in Scotland, and Bobby Graham from Scotland, and another couple of boys who were in the book, Phil Tinney and Alec Totten. And Alec Totten went on to be one of Scotland's greatest managers. Um, he's only just retired. So there was some talent there. Um, but sadly for a lot of us, there was no substitutes in 1960 yeah. to 65. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were only 12, 11 places, plus another man that carried the skip carry the kit if somebody got injured that you could go on then but they had to be injured before the game so, so you know we didn't get so many chances yeah that's so rough I mean, it was, it was. yeah because well, that, that would have cost you a debut for the first 11 well, of no, first team. No, no question about it i played 100 and i think it was 108 games in the second team which was a big league in those days. I mean, the Central League was called, and we used to play against Manchester United, Man City, all the big teams on their stadiums. <clears throat> so we would go and play Old Trafford, and the first team was Anfield, and vice versa. So we had the experience of playing in big stadiums, and the crowds were four or five thousand. You know, this seemed a lot for a reserve game. Still give you a feel for what it was like. Um, you know, we played the same system as the first team, but unless somebody got injured, but the team they had then, which was a phenomenal team, a legendary team. Every one was an international. Ian St. John, Roger Hunt, Will Cockner, Peter Thompson, Wonderwinger, Tommy Smith from the Anfield Iron, Big Ronnie Yates, you know, like yeah. Van Dyke of his day. So you, you didn't have much of a chance to get in unless somebody got injured. And, you, and even if they got injured, there's two or three people in the reserves fighting for that position. Yeah. So uh, I was so close. It was wafer thin, really. And Shankly knew that. That's why he was so good to me when I left and after I left. He, I think he felt a bit guilty about yeah. how I played and what I did, and he couldn't get me in the team. Um, and I think when I did leave, I mean, perhaps I'll speak of this later, but when I did leave the club, I mean, he looked after me. He looked after me really well, um, especially on the last day I was there. You know, it was amazing. Uh, but I was 20 years of age, and I had to get into a first team. Even yeah. if it was in Liverpool, you can't go and play in the reserves till you're 24. So he knew, yeah. unless he got me out, unless he got me out then, and the best way to get me out was to phone up Aberdeen. They didn't have to phone up Aberdeen because they made a bid for me. So they sold me to Aberdeen for £12,000 in 1965, just after the wow. cup run. So that's a lot of money back then. That was a lot of money. The house cost 2000 now or something. So, oh. you know, was, yeah, I mean, my, 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 oh, first house when, my first house when I came back from South Africa in 1968, <coughs> um, sorry, 19, yeah, 1968, was four thousand pounds and it was a three bedroom semi-detached house with its own garden that's a big transfer so yeah, my yeah, first car well, when i went to aberdeen with that transfer i bought a mini a mini car that just been invented oh, by <laughs> little mini cars and i was i was cock of the walk you know what aberdeen yeah and it was 565 pounds yeah i've it's read that you, you half of your transfer on the on the mini minor well yeah just just on just on yeah, the half yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic. What color was it? White. 
Why? Yeah. I, can always, I can even remember the number plate CRS 948C. <laughs> <laughs> was it the first love of your life, mate? Well, when I went to, yeah, when I played for Aberdeen, I remember um, <laughs> we, we played Rangers and I laid on both the goals and we won 2 0. And they had, all, they had nine internationals in the team, fabulous team, Glasgow Rangers. And we beat them at Pitodri, at Aberdeen Stadium, 30,000. <clears> all my family were there, girlfriend was there brothers and everything and to beat the rangers 2-0 to lay on both the goals i mean i was a big hero that night so i drove i drove down the pub in this white mini you know and then um, <laughs> we went in the pub and got mobbed and it gave me an idea of what it would have been like had i broke into the first time yeah, um, yeah and the same in south africa when i made a name for myself over there but i would have rather have swapped all that for just maybe half a dozen games in the first time just just speaking about money um there george um what kind of money was thrown around football those those days? So if you played in the first division, first division, um, how much were they getting paid? When I first joined Liverpool, the first team were only on twenty pounds a week. That was the maximum wage they were allowed. Twenty pounds, 20 pounds a, week. a week. Yeah, and then wow. uh, George Easton, famous player called George Easton, yeah, and Jimmy Hill, who was um, big chin, you know, we've heard of Jimmy Hill. They were in the union, the players' union. They led the, the union, and they broke down the barriers. And we were all going to go on strike, uh, but in the end, uh, the FA relented. And Johnny Haynes, who played for Fulham, he was the first player that got 100 pounds a week. And from there, it moved up. From there, it moved. So go from 20 pounds a week, yeah, to 100 pounds—a huge jump, as you can imagine. Yeah. But most of my colleagues at Liverpool and first team, for example, Peter Thompson, a great friend of mine, Peter was, and we were in digs together for three, three years. He actually was earning um, probably a couple of hundred pounds a week basic wage. Yeah. But then he'd get, I think they had a system where the crowd at Anfield, if they had over 23,000, they'd get, and they were in the first three in the league. Over 22,000, they got two pounds a thousand. So, oh. you know, and, 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 they play, and they play two games a week. Not two pounds a thousand, sorry, two pounds a thousand over 23,000. So they had 54,000 oh, 54, every week. So they'd get wow. 60 pounds. And if they had two games in a week, it would be 120 pounds on top of the 200. And then he played for England, so he'd get another 100 pounds. And he'd get advertising and sponsorship. So even in those days, they might be earning four or 500 pounds a week, which by normal standards is a lot of money. But by today, it's nothing. It's a yeah. price of a meal for price of a meal for Gerard. You know. I was about <laughs> to say, imagine if you were playing It's all relative, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, sir. So that, that sort of goes into our next question. Um, your apprenticeship for Liverpool, um, what what sort of wages were you on there um, and what was your role? Well, when I first came to Anfield, I went into digs with Gordon Wallace and Bobby Graham and the three of us were in digs and we, we paid, we, our wages were £7.50 a week. That was yep. our wage. And we paid, I paid £3.50 to um, the landlady for lodgings. That covered everything. Washing, yeah. cooking, cleaning, food, the lot. And that left me um, four, four pounds. And of that four pounds, what I used to do, I used to send two pounds in an envelope back to my mother in Aberdeen because I felt guilty at leaving the family short of the six pounds a week I would have got for Aberdeen. So she yeah. got that envelope every every Monday morning would land up in Aberdeen. First thing I did. So that took me down to two pounds a week. Now, for two pounds a week in Liverpool in the early 60s, you could have a ball. I mean, we used to go and watch the Beatles. You go and watch the Beatles. You go to the cinema. Uh, go to clubs. You know, two pound a week. You know, so 
Can you save a bit from that? I know it's hard for you boys to understand that, but that, that's that's what it was then. You know, you paid sixpence to go to the cinema. You know, so it was a different world. There was no internet. You know, there was no internet. There was no. It was only black and white television. Um, there wasn't like um, ten cameras at every game. You had one camera at the match, maybe. So, yeah. you know, it was it was a different world, really. But yeah, to answer your question, it was seven pound fifty a week, and our role included forking the pitch, cleaning the cop, painting the stands, cleaning the first team's boots, which was we had to do religiously, make them shine. They were all black boots. There were no coloured boots in those days. Not like they are today. Like ballet dancers today. And they've got um, <laughs> pitches, pitches like bowling greens, balls as light as a balloon, you know, and all these all these medical treatments and checking your health and your heart and your rate, yeah. little thing on your ear for your blood pressure, That's social media, you can't breathe without being photographed. We didn't have any of that. So, I mean, we just had the football. We played for the love of the game, not for the money. Yeah. But, you know, we did, um, we did get to play five-a-sides. Uh, and we got to train with the first team. So we trained every morning. Every morning, the coach would come to Anfield and we'd get in the coach with the first team, all of us together. And we'd drive all the way down to Melwood, get out of the coach, and the training would begin. And the training was very, for those days, was very special, very innovative and ahead of its time. Shankly and Paisley, Fagan. They had the shooting boards in the corner. They had three pitches at Melwood. They had a cricket pavilion when we got changed with a, with a big bath. And that was it. There was no fancy like there is now. There was no like banter computers and plunge pools and five-star restaurants and all that. It was yeah. just basic to that. But Shankly loved the big pitch. Big pitch in front of the um, in front of the, the cricket pavilion was his pride and joy. And he I remember once he put a notice on only players with six caps allowed on this pitch. So we all thought, oh, I mean, we can't play on it. He said, I'm only yeah. joking. So he took it off. So. But he was so proud of his, uh, what he did in Melwood, the way they trained there. So we trained there all morning. And then we came back up on the coach to Anfield and we had lunch in the canteen. It wasn't a restaurant, it was a canteen. Uh, yeah. And Shankly would sit in the corner with his silver teapot. God knows what was in it. He didn't drink and he didn't have tea, so it must have been some some weird herb or something. And he'd be sitting <laughs> talking to the press. He'd be talking to the press and you could see his hands going, you know, giving them all this and the press would be transfixed by what he was saying. He's, reporters and uh, we were all sitting about steak he only believed in steak that was in steak you used to have steak all the time yeah. there's a funny there's a funny story about that i could tell you there's a young lad playing for the club called tommy lowry uh he's an apprentice he's a talented boy a fullback later played many games for crew alexander in the fourth division but at liverpool he was talented but he wasn't very big and shankly told his landlady to feed him steak Every day, feed him steak because I want the boy to, to grow and get strong. So he, Mrs. Mrs. Jones, I think her name was, she fed Tommy the steak. So about six months, he, Shanks keeps monitoring, monitoring his weight, monitoring his muscles. And he's building up great, you know, really coming on well. And Shankly says to Bob Paisley, yeah, look at Lowry, look at Lowry. The boy's so strong. Look at steak diet's working a treat. And uh, <laughs> you know, he's really thrilled about it. So then one day, Tommy knocks on his door and Shankly opens the door and says to him, he said, Hey, Tommy, son, what do you want? He said, uh, boss, boss, can I have a, can I have a, a bit of a stammer? Can I have, do you think I can have a clubhouse? Because the players used to get clubhouses, you know, provided if they were their first team material. Shanky said, what do you want a clubhouse for, son? You're only 18. He said, well, I'm getting married, boss. He said, married, you're getting married at 18. You're married to football, son. You shouldn't be getting married at that young age. 
no, no, you can't get married, son. He said, but I have to, boss. He said, uh, he said, um, my girlfriend's pregnant. And Shelly says to Bob Beersley, best Bob will create a monster at stake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. You like, you like the steak diet, Shanks. So that was it, really. We did all those jobs and we played five sides. We played five sides against Shankly, Paisley, Fagan, Moran. Uh, there'd be myself, Bobby Graham, Chris Waller, Tommy Smith, Young Star Boys. So every week we played five sides. Never we never I won. The, I heard the gains kept on going until Shankly won. Well, this is it, yeah. Yeah. Well, that story is in the book when we were playing in the, in the car park outside the main, main stand. And, Shankly, Chris Lawler got injured. He hobbled off and stood watching by the turnstile. And Shankly said, carry on, the game's not over. So we carried on. They had five men, we had four. And he chipped the ball over our heads. We all turned round and the ball went over the post. Just We used to have gym shoes for, for posts. Went over the post and Shankly said, right, time up. Game over. Come on, boys, get a shower. He said, no, boss, that wasn't Tommy Smith. Tommy was hard even in those days. That wasn't a goal, that wasn't a goal boss. That was, that was over the pump. You're cheating. I don't cheat, son. I'm the manager. Game's over. <laughs> Tommy says, ask Chris. Ask Chris. He can see. He's got a good view. So Shanley says, right, Chris, was that a goal, son? Chris says, no. Shanley says, Chris, we waited a year for you to speak, son, and your first bloody word's a lie. Because <laughs> <laughs> Chris, Chris was known as the silent knight because That's he did awesome. he'd everything by his actions, not his words. He's a great That's player. Awesome. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna say one name to you, and I want you to tell me how he was as a manager and as a pl uh, person. Bill Shankly. Well, I mean, Shankly was unique. I mean, he was he was the greatest manager ever lived, greatest football man ever lived. Don't imagine. That's all he lived for football. He didn't have any other interests. Football and his family, and Liverpool fans. I mean, because he loved the fans and they loved him. He got them. He knew what they were all about. He used to tell us, he said, look, son, you're playing for these people that work in the factories, mundane jobs in the docks. And they come here on a Saturday. This is their entertainment. That cop's like a big family. You're playing for them. He went on about that all the time. Some of the things he said to me resonate to this day. You get nothing for sitting still. Nothing happens unless you make it happen. So never give up. All these things, you know, he, he was unique. I mean, I mean, when they made him, they broke the, book, the mold, you know. There's been great managers, no question. I mean, Alex Ferguson's an amazing manager, an amazing record. Bob Paisley won more trophies than Bill Shankly. He was an amazing man as well. Shankly had the character and the charisma to get to make people listen to him. And when he walked towards you, you get your hands to stand up in your neck. You look hard to get out of the way, you know, because you never knew what he was going to say to you. you know, and there's hundreds of stories. Yeah, I, can tell, I can tell by the way you're talking. Yeah, you're still you're reliving it. Well, I, I, I do after dinner talking sometimes about Shankly, and I don't do it for money. I've never made any money out of it. I do it for lymphoma research because my wife had blood cancer. And yeah. She recovered grade yeah. three. She's bad. You don't normally recover from that. So when I do those talks, I do them about Shankly. tell all the stories. There's no chance to tell them here. It's too short. But I mean, I do tell the stories in the accent, and people like it because there's so many of them. And about 90% of them are true. A little bit embellished, some of them. You know, but, um, a little bit of spice. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, but I mean, 90, I would say 90% are true. And they go down in history, legend. Most of them have heard Shanty aficionados will have heard them. They still laugh. It's still yeah. funny. You know, so many you can't. I mean, I was one, I was one for example, I can tell you. And we're playing against uh, Sunderland, Anfield. And uh, I was watching the game from the band box. So it was quite nice to the players. The manager sits. 
There was a lad called Arf Arrowsmith. Arf was a great player. A lot of people may not have him now, but he, he was very, very instrumental in Liverpool winning the championship in 64. He came on a lot, scored about 20 goals. Arf was on the pitch, and there was a big centre-half called Charlie Hurley. He was massive. And Tommy Lawrence kicked the ball out, and it bounced by the player's entrance, player's tunnel. And both Hurley jumped up with Arrowsmith, and the heads clashed, and they both went down. And Hurley recovered quickly. He got up, shook his head like a big bull elephant, and he wanders off into the mist. Arrowsmith still lying there, and it's just before half time, and there's no substitutes. So Shankly's getting agitated, and he's leaning forward, and he's, Bob Paisley gone on with his smell and salts, and he's got the smell and salts underneath Arrowsmith's nose, and Alfie's not responding. And Shankly shouts to Bob Paisley, he leans forward, and he says, Is he going to be okay? Is the boy going to be okay, Bob? Bob says, no, boss, I don't think so. He doesn't know who he is. Shaq <laughs> says, tell him he's Pelly. <laughs> <laughs> that was true. What about, what's the, what's the story behind cleaning the first team's boots? Well, the boot room is like, it's a legendary place, the boot room, you know? I mean, I went on a tour of Anfield fairly recently, and the guy, the guy, the very, very good guy, he was showing these uh, people in the two of the boot room. It wasn't the boot room. It was a mock-up of the boot room. I mean, it bore no relation to the boot room. The boot room was like the size of a terrace, the front room of a terrace house in Anfield. It was crammed full of pegs with boots on them, all with numbers above them, names, and the players' numbers, each other number. And then there was a bench with full of dubbing and, and one of those lasts and things, you know, you can put the shoes on. Um, and there was a load of baskets, all the dirty kit went on, went off to the laundrette. Um, so that's what, and, and it was a little school, so Shankly and Paisley and Pig, and they would sit there and they would plot, they'd plot the downfall of the opponents, because nobody could see them, they were in the boot room, and a little glass of wine and a whiskey, and, and, and that was it, and the boots, we used to have to go in there, we weren't allowed in, as apprentices, between the age of 15 and 17, you couldn't go in there unless you were cleaning the boots, so we went in, and we were given boots to clean, I used to clean Roger Hunt's boots, it was an honour, I used to treat it as an honour, he was a top scorer in the team, so I was one ahead of the boys, you know, I'm cleaning Roger's boots, or St. John, you know. So that was the boot room, really. And we just, when you became a professional and you signed as a full-time pro, somebody else cleaned your boots. The other apprentices cleaned your boots then. I was up to pecking order, you know. See, it was different then. In our day, you joined as an apprentice at 15, and you had two years to prove yourself. Those two years were so important. You had to fight hard up the ladder to be noticed and to play well in the second team. Well, it wasn't the second team. We played in the fourth team to start with. Uh, even the fifth team. It's called the C team. The C, B, A, reserves and first team. So you start in the C team, then you get up to the B team, then the A team. That was a big move. And finally, when you got your debut for the reserves, you're on the way. So at 17, you went into Shankly's office and you're either told, down or up. And a lot of people actually come out and see them crying because they put two years of their life into it. They've got no qualifications, they've got no trade, they've not been to university, and they're out the door. And on the other side of the corners, you get signed as an apprentice and you punch in the air, and uh, your career's on the way. Today, the kids at Anfield or at um, Kirby, where they have the training ground, they're maybe eight years old. They're coming in at eight years old, nine years old, and in their school, they're big heroes. You know, Jason's gone to Liverpool, he's playing for Liverpool, you know, he's in Liverpool's setup. They get to 12 and they're still there. And all of a sudden, somebody picked one of the coaches and say, I'm sorry, son, you did your best, but I'm afraid you're not going to make it. And off they go, and then the little hearts are broken. 
And because there's not that many make it. If you look at Liverpool, they've no. had Carragher, Gerard, Trent Alexander, Curtis Jones. I'm struggling now. Yeah. So, yeah. From people that have been first team players from that academy. And that's great to get four or five players of those quality. Yeah. But for the guys that don't make it, it's not so great. Yeah. I, I actually I actually love the whole concept of um, you know, having an apprentice type thing and um you know, players cleaning each other's boots. Um, I honestly think it keeps people, a lot, you know, very humble. And I think it brings them back to sort of reality as well, like what yes. actual yeah. reality is. And yeah. I actually yeah. wish they would bring that back into sport. Um, Gordon, Wallace, Gordon, Gordon Wallace yesterday, we were, we were doing a podcast yesterday after the signing, and Gordon Wallace was saying um, he went up to Kirby uh, to be sure. In fact, he was with me, I think, at the time. We went up together. But then we got separated. And he said he was talking to one of the um, one of the lads there about the cars. Because in the car park, there were all sorts of top-class Mercedes, um, BMWs, Range Rovers. He said, who's the cars here? Hey, there's yeah. some of the first team here. No, no, he said, that's the under-19s. That's the under-19s cars. No, yeah. So these kids, once they get into the under-19s, on the brink of the first team, they're probably earning as much as I have made in my career. Yeah. yeah, and they don't know any different either. So they've just no, because no, yeah. no, because they haven't had the hard knocks. They haven't yeah. had the hard knocks. I mean, you know, I agree with you, Scott. I think it's a good. I mean, maybe a bit of an old-fashioned view now, but I think it does you no harm to to put the hard work in outside, you know, and then get yeah. the glory when it comes. Totally, and yeah. I think it's across not just uh, football, but a lot of other sports where. Kids like 16, 17 just going straight into the professional sport and it's like they're jumping all those little steps in life to keep them humble and grounded and grinding away and they lose that um, that touch of reality because they're just pushed straight into stardom and it's it's beyond them. It's it, it's They're not ready yeah. mentally for it. So. And you know, in 2021, I mean, I remember when I was that age, you haven't got the maturity. To deal yeah. with certain things and now it's even worse because of the internet social yeah, sure. media you know and things are going there we, we would never have experienced any of that you know. i mean it, when i was at liverpool yeah even st john would get mobbed in town i mean whenever he went he would get mobbed by autographs or john yeah in liverpool but nobody in nigeria or you know sudan or somewhere would know who the hell he was now you can sit in a mud hut in africa and watch liverpool win european championship i mean because wi-fi is everywhere i mean and the social media is everywhere so there's no escape for these lads now. If they do something wrong, yeah. I mean, press it onto them right, right away, you know. Um, so you've got to be squeaky clean. Yeah, you've got to be squeaky clean. These days, you know, a lot of footballers over here, they absolutely cop it whenever they do something wrong. So yeah. the media's all over them. You know, and, and it'd be worse in Europe because they're bigger stars than what they yeah. are in Australia, for sure. I mean, they should know the rules, shouldn't they? They must know they're on the internet themselves, Twitter, Instagram and all that. They must know they do something stupid that expose themselves to that sort of thing. So you've got to try and be like Steve Gerrard, people like that, you know. Yeah. I mean, he had his few problems in the past as well, to be honest. But, I mean, he's an absolute legend. You concentrate on the football. I think if you concentrate on the football and some of the other things take care of themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the so, Melwood, the uh, fam famous training ground in Liverpool, what are the facilities like from back then when you played? No, I don't know whether you, I don't know whether you know or not, but Melwood's been sold. Really? It's been sold, it's been sold to a housing development company. Oh um, no! 
Well, from from my sin, you really it's in the book. This, if you get to that chapter, it's, Liverpool's been sold to a development company for affordable housing. But Jamie Carragher and Robbie Fowler, I think it is, have bought half of it back and created okay. the Robbie Fowler Jamie Carragher Academy. And Beth Tweddle, the gymnast, is involved as well. So half of it, at least, is going to remain a football academy. Um, but Melwood, to answer your question, before that happened, Gordon and I went to Melwood. Uh, Peter Moore is the chairman of Bethesda. We've just yeah. been to Sweden. We've just been to Sweden to um, present the Swedish fans with a trophy for Liverpool's 125th anniversary. And when we came back, Peter said, "Do you want to take the lad to Melwood?" So we went to Melwood. It was amazing. I mean, you even in Melwood. It's like uh, the restaurant was like the Ritz. It's full of the most beautiful food. They, um, they had table tennis tables. They had squash court. They had Plunge bath, the yeah, old shanty sayings all over the place, you know, on the walls. Yeah. Um, jogging club's office was like was like a penthouse suite in the best hotel in Australia. You know, everything was perfect. Photographs everywhere. I mean, it's just a luxury place. But that one place, the thing that meant most to me when we went into the foyer, there was a photograph in the foyer that I was on, and in the entrance to Melwood, there's a famous photograph that was taken when we were kids. Shankly yeah. is coaching us, and the kids are on the wall, little kids on the wall. And I'm kneeling with the one hand on my knee, and Shankly's talking to us. And that photograph is in the foyer at Melwood. And Gordon Wallace said to me, said, Look at you, look what you get, you get everywhere. He said, I can't believe it. <laughs> but that photograph's on the front of the book, actually, Scott. Okay. And, and have, have you been to the new facilities uh, that Liverpool train at? Yes, I've been there as well. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, a fantastic playing pitch for the, for the under-18s, under-21s. It's got fantastic dressing rooms. Again, it's got all these sayings of different Liverpool legends. It's got, I don't know how many pitches. Massive piece of land and really, really good. Got everything you can think of in the training room. Yeah, okay. Thanks for listening to another episode of the official Big Stiff podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Hey, um, Scotty, you there, mate? Yeah, mate, I'm here. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Just type in at the Big Stiff Podcast and you should find us there. Okay, thanks. Bye, guys.